Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Prosecutors anticipate resting their criminal case against Sam Bankman-Fried by next Thursday. They've built their case around the testimony of three members of Bankman-Fried's inner circle who pleaded guilty and testified against him. Now the question is whether Bankman-Fried will testify in his own defense, a question that's fraught with perils for the defense. Joining me to discuss the case is former federal prosecutor Michael Weinstein of Cole Shots. It seems like the prosecution has built an almost insurmountable case against Sam Bankman-Fried. How strong is this case compared to others you've seen? It's an extremely strong case for three reasons. Number one, because they have firsthand individuals who were in the room at the table discussing certain acts those being criminal, which present a problem for Sam Bankman-Fried. They also have documents and Slack messages and text messages, which are problematic as well, which support the discussions, the improper discussions that were being held. And then number three, they have the industry itself is fraught with problems and the representations that were made to investors and things of that nature, which he has said publicly prior to the criminal charges being brought. So that's a trifecta of problems for Mr. Freed. And I think his defense lawyers are having a difficult time chipping away at some of the things that are being said through testimony, notwithstanding the great efforts that they are trying to make. Yeah, it seems as if even in pretrial motions, the defense seemed to lose almost every important pretrial motion. Judge Kaplan also seems to be keeping them very tightly in check. One of the reporters in the courtroom told me that, for example, during the cross-examination of Caroline Ellison, there were objections to form, objections, objections that were constantly sustained, and they really couldn't make much headway. Yeah, so that's correct. So not only is the defense up against testimony and documents, they're up against the judge and the structure of the proceeding. And the judge prior to trial, for example, you know, prohibited certain of the defense witnesses that they wanted to bring in. Example number one is the expert from Britain that they wanted to bring in to talk about the terms and conditions. So their hands were tied from the start of this case. And that's really playing out now in reality. Those will be appealed. But how much are issues like that left to the discretion of the judge? I mean, we all know it's very difficult to get a conviction, assuming he's convicted, overturned. How much is that in the discretion of the judge? A tremendous amount. The judge is the referee, essentially, and he is able to call balls and strikes uh, when necessary. And there is guidance through the appellate courts, through the Second Circuit, for example, or through other rulings that the courts have made, or for instance, the federal rules of criminal procedure guide the court in making those decisions. But the judge is given great latitude in determining the type of evidence, the relevance of that evidence, how it comes in, whether it comes in, whether it can be challenged, things of that nature. 
So you had these three witnesses who decided to cooperate with the state. Two are longtime friends of his. One's a former girlfriend. Does that make their testimony more believable? I think it does. And the reason is because they're not new onto the scene. It's not as though for six months, you know, they dropped in out of the sky. And then in that six month period, there were some criminal acts. They gave a little bit of the longer history that they had with Sam Bankman-Fried, both the run-up to him starting the business, their involvement, their role in the company, and then ultimately it's spiraling out of control. And I think that gives them a little bit of credibility in the jury's eyes because, you know, they can give a little bit more context. And when they speak to things like what Sam Bankman-Fried was saying at some of those meetings and some of the decisions he was making, they can give some context to that because they've known him so long. And so from my perspective, when you've got that longtime relationship, that favors the government insofar as the testimony coming out and really hurting the defendant. What do you think about, I mean, it happens all the time, but the judge allowing in all the evidence about you know, Caroline Nellison testifying about his image and how he thought his hair helped his image and trading in luxury cars for more inexpensive cars. And then even profane messages he sent to reporters about regulators after the collapse. When is that kind of testimony too much? And that's the judge's kind of uh, role as a referee to say, come on, that's a little too much. Is it relevant for the ninth time for you to emphasize that he wanted to have a nice image? But look, the government's putting it in because they want to show what was his motivation in stealing the money and moving the money and transferring the money. They want to show that his motivation was to look good and feel good and to give this impression to people throughout you know, the United States or throughout the world that he was this successful mogul and that he really was an oracle into the future. And, you know, him being an oracle is the aura that he tried to create. But of course, the reality is much different. By all accounts, the defense didn't make much headway in the cross-examination of those three inner circle witnesses. They did poke some holes in the testimony here and there. Does that really help in the end? I think the answer is probably no. It's like chopping down an oak tree. You can take a couple swings with an axe, but that's not going to take down the tree. Is there any point at which the jury looks at these three who are you know, saying, yeah, I took part in this, but he directed me to do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, when things collapse and they get caught and decide to flip. Is there any point that the jury says, why are these three getting off and he's here? Well, that certainly is how the defense wants to frame it. I think the difficulty with that is they're not getting off. They've pled guilty to very significant and very material criminal charges, which will carry with it significant penalties. And that's the response if and when the defense says to them during a cross-examination and did say to them, well, aren't you getting a sweetheart deal now? And that's always the push and pull when you have a cooperating witness on the witness stand is, you know, are they getting really a sweetheart deal? And that's for the jury to assess their credibility to a jury to assess, are they testifying only to get a better deal? Here, it doesn't look like they got a great deal. Here, they knew that they were kind of dead in their tracks and wanted to save some semblance of the remainder of their life by pleading guilty and then moving on with their life. But as a consequence of that, they had to testify against their former friend. Do you think they'll actually serve jail time? I think they have real exposure. Yes, there's a lot of money here. I think a lot of eyes are going to be looking at all of these pleas, and I think they have some real problems here. 
What do you think about the prosecution portraying him as a criminal mastermind? Look, I mean, I think that's somewhat of the narrative that the government has to tell. They don't want to suggest that he was this naive 20-year-old kid just, you know, playing with house money. I think they have to make him out to be a little bit more sinister, a little more systematic, and a little bit more conniving. That is just part of their narrative. I mean, when I look at all of these guys, the three cooperating witnesses who pled guilty and Sam Bankman-Fried, it just reminds me of when I sit in the room and I look at my nieces and nephews who are in their 20s, and I look and I think to myself, could they be entrusted with 10, 20, <laughs> $30 billion? And the answer is no, you know? And it's remarkable to me that very sophisticated investors gave so much money repeatedly to a group of people that were in their mid-20s and were, you know, waving a shiny object, which was cryptocurrency. So that's a larger takeaway from this situation. But I think all four of them have some real exposure here. The big question is that every criminal trial is whether the defendant will take the stand in his own defense. What do you think? Uh, I think that's a great question. And someone in Vegas is probably betting on that. (laughs) I think he may want to do something. His lawyers may want to do something very different. Although I think they're setting it up with the recent argument that he's not getting his medication. He's not able to assist in his own defense. So you can kind of see the groundwork being laid where they may not call him because he's not getting his medication. And maybe they're setting up an appeal issue that he maybe would have testified. But look, the reason defendants testify is because they believe that they can tell their story better and they can provide an explanation and they can justify what they did and how they did it. Here, that's very, very difficult because he's going to have to counter three people who were in the room during these discussions, who all gave pretty consistent testimony. And for him to testify, of course, he's opening himself up and risking a pretty ferocious cross-examination, and that is a real problem for him. And all the prior statements he's made. But, well, I want to say it's his only hope, his only chance to convince perhaps one or two jurors. Correct. I mean, he may feel, and his defense lawyers may feel, what have I got to lose? We're deep in the hole here. And this may be the only ladder out is to have him testify and to humanize the situation and to talk about how he really tried to do all the right things and he wasn't misleading anyone and he really tried to make, you know, good decisions and he relied upon other people. He relied upon Miss Ellison. He relied upon Mr. Gary Wong, things of that nature. But again, as good as he thinks his testimony is going to come off, the prosecution is salivating, waiting in the wings to cross-examine him and to use a multitude of statements he's made previously in their examination. And that's going to be quite fascinating. If he does take the stand, one thing is sure, the courtroom will be packed. Thanks so much, Michael. That's former federal prosecutor Michael Weinstein of Cole Shots. Coming up next, the latest gag order on Donald Trump. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. My, my speech has been taken away from me. I'm a candidate that's running for office, and I'm not allowed to speak. This is a railroading that's all coming out of the Department of Justice. It's all set up by Biden and his thugs that he's surrounded with. Of course, contrary to his statements, 
Donald Trump was, in fact, speaking to the media after federal judge Tanya Chutkin imposed a partial gag order on him. The order bars the former president from publicly criticizing witnesses, prosecutors, court staff, and their families involved in the special counsel's case against him for attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The judge found that Trump's barrage of attacks on those in the case posed a significant and immediate risk of intimidating witnesses and jeopardizing the safety of the public servants involved. Joining me is former prosecutor Rebecca Royfe, a professor at New York Law School. Do Trump's attacks on the judiciary stand alone? Have we ever seen anything quite like this before? I mean, I think the unique thing about it, normally, you know, somebody who's embroiled in a legal system, a criminal defendant, you know, it doesn't seem so unusual for that person to attack the system that has targeted him or her. But of course, the scale and the prominence of this defendant makes a difference. This goes back to when he was president and he was calling out judges. And the chief justice said there are no Trump judges or Obama judges. Right. It goes back and it's a little bit relentless. Like it's not just, you know, one individual instance of a court case or a lawsuit or a ruling that came out against them. Because, you know, I, I do think that, you know, you, you can see politicians saying similar sorts of things in isolated instances, but I think it's the repeated nature of the comments and his style, so the way that they're made an exaggerated, extreme version of what somebody else might say in those instances. Do you think because they're exaggerated and extreme, a lot of people, most people just, you know, disregard them? Or do you think that his attacks do have an effect on the standing of the judiciary in the public's eye? It's an empirical question and a hard one to know for sure, but I think it's effective. You know, I think people are already skeptical, as we Americans are, you know, bred to be about government institutions, and that's a healthy kind of suspicion or questioning. But, you know, I think he feeds on this and turns it into something that's closer to a kind of paranoia that is not necessarily based in fact and more concerning than anything else. And so, You know, I think he's been particularly effective in this particular regard, exploiting both, you know, vulnerabilities in the system and a culture of healthy questioning among citizens in America. So let's discuss what judges have done and can do. Tell us about the competing interests the judges have to consider. So judges are in a difficult position because they're weighing the importance of the integrity of their proceedings and concern for manipulation of witnesses, potential jurors, and any other kind of undermining of the fairness of the process, along with a extremely important First Amendment right that anyone has to speak out, but particularly somebody who's running for president of the United States. At the hearing, Judge Chutkin, apparently it was a pretty heated discussion at times. She said one could come away from these arguments with a mistaken understanding that the First Amendment is an absolute right. That's false. The First Amendment yields to the administration of justice. I know it's not an absolute right, but does it always yield to the administration of justice? Well, Whenever there is a compelling government interest for limiting speech, speech can be limited in certain ways. And so, you know, it is true that there are often restrictions on people's speech when that speech interferes with 
the administration of justice or the integrity of the judicial system. I think, you know, it would be wrong to say absolutely the administration of justice is a more important value than First Amendment rights. And I don't think that's exactly what she was trying to say, but it would be misinterpreted and, and it would be wrong if that's what she was suggesting. But what I think is accurate is that First Amendment law is designed to balance different interests. And while the First Amendment weighs extremely strongly, and especially in the context of political speech, is almost absolute, it's not entirely. And it does, in certain circumstances, give way. And the law is clear about that. So she's right in saying that it's not an absolute right. But I think it is an exaggeration to say it always yields. She decided to sort of come to some middle ground almost, not quite. Right. So what she decided to do was to draw a limited gag order that restricts the former president's speech in a certain regard, but allows him to engage in sort of broader, more rhetorical criticisms of the justice system, but limits his ability or or restricts his ability to single out particular players and criticize those particular individuals, actors, you know, who are involved in this particular prosecution. You know, he's slammed judges and the district attorneys who are prosecuting him. For example, he's unleashed a barrage of criticism and ridicule against the New York Attorney General, who's coming after his business empire for years, and even in court has made motions saying this is a political prosecution, etc. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's on the same level as calling out the judges. In terms of the level of harm, I think it's even potentially greater, in part because especially on the federal level, what he's doing is exploiting a kind of weakness in our system, which is our federal system of prosecution is embedded under the executive. So even if there is a special prosecutor, which there is in this case, that prosecutor reports to the attorney general, who in turn is a cabinet member and appointed, chosen by the president. So while I believe President Biden, when he says he's not involved in this prosecution, there are no legal limits or no absolute barriers to his involvement, that, you know, that is the way that our system works. So I think that on some level, the public is aware of this, and therefore, he gets more traction from arguing that prosecutors are, at least in the federal system, you know, dominated or or driven by this political animus. And I think that judges, while it's true, you know, are also political appointees. It is a separate branch. And I think on some level, people grasp that. And there's still a greater faith, even if it is waning in judges and judicial system than there is in these individual prosecutions. And so, you know, I do think it's, it does more damage in part because of the weaknesses that are built into our system. Fred, that even his attorney, John Loro, argued in the court that Trump was being punished by the Biden administration during an election cycle. He also argued that this was the sign of a nation veering into totalitarianism. And those arguments seem to me more like for the for the public than they are for the judge. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of that is going to be effective before the judge. But, you know, this is a refrain that they are going to repeat at every moment that they possibly can. And I think the separation of these legal cases from the political case that he's making has collapsed. And essentially, he has combined both. And of course, in the courtroom, 
there will be restrictions, but insofar as the, they bleed over and that there's so much public attention that he's going to use every moment he can to hammer this political message that has been relatively successful for him. And I've listened to some of his speeches on the campaign trail recently. It may be difficult for him. He's going to have to have a whole new shtick because he goes back again and again to talking about the judges and the prosecutors, you know, they're deranged, talking about the system being against him. And he circles back to that over and over. So he's going to have to do a complete redo of his rallies, I guess. Right. You know, it also raises the question of how the judge is going to enforce her order, because, you know, it's one thing to issue the SCAG order. And it, in a way, it's throwing down a gauntlet. I mean, if he does decide to violate that order, what is she going to do? <laughs> and so, you know, there are a lot of legal options open to her. But, you know, those options, again, are problematic. I mean, we are in this unique situation, not because the prosecution, you know, is being handled and manipulated by the Biden administration that has a grudge against its adversary, but rather because the former president has created the situation and, you know, he's created it and he's, you know, plans to run with it in this particular way. And that is you know, largely what's unique about it. What's unique about it is not just the alleged crimes that he may have committed, but of course, his, the way that he approaches litigation and approaches these criminal cases is just so belligerent and, you know, pushing every last limit and forcing the judge to respond. And so, you know, I don't know what she would do under those circumstances, but I think it's equally possible that he ignores her order as it would be that he, you know, alters his speech entirely on the campaign trail. Hours after the gag order at a campaign event in Iowa, Trump said, quote, a judge doesn't like me too much. Her whole life is not liking me. Then you know what a gag order is? You can't speak badly about your opponent. Maybe he got the message at least for the time being because it doesn't seem like that really violates her order, does it? Judge doesn't like a judge doesn't like me much. Right. That's what I mean. He's going to push the limits of this order. I don't know. If I were interpreting it, I certainly wouldn't say he's crossed over line, but he's come very, very close. And given the fact that he's not the most precise with language, you know, when, <laughs> what point does he actually walk over to the other side? And I mean, at this point, it's useful to him, I think, now he can use the gag order because the gag order itself has political value for him because he doesn't have to attack the judge if he's attacking the gag order. You know, if he's saying, well, here it is, you know, proof positive, the Biden administration is now muzzling me and I can't speak, you know, this is just a different way of saying the exact same thing. And, you know, that he's allowed to do. And he'll do that so long as that's effective. You know, when it wears out, does he go back to his old shtick? I just don't really know. She mentioned some options if he violates the gag order, including admonishing Trump in court, which I believe has been done before by a couple of judges, imposing financial penalties, home detention, or revoking his pretrial release. She also said that the prosecutors wouldn't have to make a motion for her to rule on this. You know, she could do it sua sponte. And I wonder why she added that. I mean, does she really want to get into monitoring his speech? I definitely don't think she does. I think what she is trying to do is emphasize the power of a court order that once it's in place, that it's easier to enforce, you know, than these vague conditions of release that, you know, may or may not have been violated and that require some kind of adversary process that 
she's saying this could be very quick and very swift and severe, and that is just a way of trying to get him not to do it. Whether that's successful, I don't know, because he also understands that her hands are tied in part by his role, that to put him on home arrest or to put him in prison while he's running for president, I mean, that would be so extreme, and and there's no chance that she's going to do that. So she puts it on the table. Of course, legally, she's allowed to do it, but she's never going to do it. And to what extent is he here to, you know, push that to the point at which she either does it or she doesn't do it? And if she does it, it's this great political windfall for him because he can pretend that, you know, I mean, he could say this is the Biden administration locking me up so I won't win, you know, or he gets away with it. And so, you know, in a way, it's sort of a genius move. I mean, this is Trump's particular genius, his ability to do this and his willingness to do this. Maybe she's hoping that at least it will stop him from commenting about witnesses, if nothing else. I mean, that seems to be the greatest yeah threat. I mean right I think that's right and that she has to assert herself as controlling her courtroom in some manner I mean she can't just let this go by and so you know I think this is as good a solution as any there are certain restrictions you know she's not and my guess is going to police things when he runs right up to the line but you know there's an outer limit and he can't go too far beyond it and I think you know threatening particular witnesses calling people out by name the kind of thing he did in the New York civil case where he posted a picture of a court clerk like none of that is going to happen I mean and that's just making a mockery of the courtroom like that that you know it's appropriate for her to say no there a day after the judge issued this order Trump filed notice that he's going to appeal it do you think that this order will withstand an appeal? My guess is it will. It, it was narrowly drawn, and it isn't you know, too far away from what judges do in situations like this. I think the you know, untested territory is just the stature and the nature of the defendant here, and he is running for president. And so the core political speech is like at the very core of the very core. <laughs> and so, you know, it is possible that an appellate court could disagree with her. But my guess is, you know, there, there's a lot of deference here, and she hasn't done anything wild or extremely unusual here. So my guess is that there won't be a reversal of the gag order. You know, my guess is it stands and he runs right up to the line and kind of pushes it and she admonishes him. And this is kind of a game that goes all the way up until March. It'll be interesting to see how the appellate court rules on this. Thanks so much, Rebecca. That's Professor Rebecca Royfe of New York Law School. Coming up, what the ghost gun decision says about the Supreme Court. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court seems to be telling the Fifth Circuit and a Texas federal judge, no means no. In August, the court voted to allow the Biden administration's regulations aimed at ghost guns to remain in effect, blocking a nationwide injunction by Texas federal judge Reed O'Connor. But after that order was issued, O'Connor again stepped in to block the regulations as applied to two manufacturers And so on Monday, the Supreme Court once again reinstated the Biden administration's regulation on ghost guns. 
Joining me is Heidi Lee Feldman, a professor at Georgetown Law. So let's go back to the August decision, five to four, where the Supreme Court blocked a nationwide injunction by Texas federal judge Reed O'Connor and allowed the government to keep enforcing the regulations on ghost guns. Should that have been the end of this until the case was fully litigated? One would have thought so. And that's certainly ultimately the position the government took. It was very peculiar that after O'Connor ruled and that they then sought an injunction pending appeal. But that is an alteration in the procedural posture of the case. They didn't give any new reasons for seeking an injunction while the case was pending. And that was, I think, the really controversial thing. Nothing had changed in the facts or the law that would be relevant to granting an injunction. So ordinarily, if a party did that, the judge would just deny it because they had just had an injunction overturned by the Supreme Court. And of course, in this case, Judge O'Connor granted the injunction and didn't give any new reasons. And the court really just put the kibosh on that and said, no, no. Also, the Fifth Circuit upheld his order. Yeah, look, there's several very contested matters that were dri- that are driving this litigation. Ghost gun manufacturers come in and say, we object to this ATF rulemaking, which seems to require us to take all sorts of steps that people who make firearms have to take. We're arguing we're not firearms manufacturers, we're parts suppliers. So that whole dynamic introduces guns into the mix. Then we have a federal agency, ATF, which has its own long, complicated history. But we have a judiciary, and certainly O'Connor and the Fifth Circuit, that's very keen to invalidate agency rulemaking. So I think the Fifth Circuit as a whole was very moved by that agenda. And and so they do uphold O'Connor's order. And so ultimately, of course, the Supreme Court is rejecting the Fifth Circuit's position as well as O'Connor's position on the injunction. But the fact that the Supreme Court took that position isn't an indication of how they would ultimately rule on the merits as much as I think it was a rejection of the challenge to the authority of their earlier ruling. The Solicitor General seemed to emphasize that in an unusually sharp filing, she told the justices that the Fifth Circuit and the District Court, Judge O'Connor, have effectively countermanded this court's authoritative determinations about the status quo that should prevail during appellate proceedings in this case, and that the court should not tolerate that affront. So the court's August order that we just talked about was a five to four decision where Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the court's three liberals. No justice publicly dissented from this order that was handed down. Do you think that that suggests just that they're even getting annoyed with the Fifth Circuit and judges like Federal Judge O'Connor, or is it more that they're not opposed to the ghost gun regulations? It's very hard to read tea leaves from these orders that are issued without opinions. And these are, you know, orders that relate to not the final merits on the case. So I want to sound a note of caution. Having sounded that note of caution, 
I think that there are judges, justices on the court, who may be very unsympathetic to the ATF rulemaking related to ghost guns, who realize that you simply cannot operate our system of litigating cases case by case and letting different courts reach different conclusions if they disagree and seeing what emerges up through the process. And that, what Reed O'Connor and the Fifth Circuit wanted to do, absolutely disrupts that process. It also wastes the Supreme Court's time. I mean, they do not want to have to keep issuing redundant interlocutory orders. That's just completely uh, inefficient for them. So I think you could have justices who may be less sympathetic to uh, the idea of letting the ATF rulemaking stand or more sympathetic to relatively unfettered sales of ghost guns who nevertheless see procedural chaos (laughs) as a real threat uh, from what the Fifth Circuit and uh, Judge O'Connor did. The Fifth Circuit last term lost, I think, seven out of eight cases at the Supreme Court, and they have a lot of cases before the court this year. And many of them are from judges in Texas, like Reed O'Connor, that seem to have novel, shall we say novel, legal reasoning in their decisions. I mean, do you I think, think we that- have to, I think, I think we have to use a stronger word. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I think we have to use a stronger word than novel is, look, in sophisticated litigation in federal courts, advocates and courts are advancing the law. So there's often something novel in what they uh, argue, in what courts hold. That's neither unexpected nor unusual. What is problematic is when you have a court and the federal judiciary in Texas, the district court level is like this, and the Fifth Circuit is like this, that is receptive to extreme arguments. They're not just creative or novel. They are highly contentious. Now, if you have a court that is receptive to that, maybe some of those highly contentious and highly extreme arguments will ultimately be vindicated. But the more extreme the substance is of a position that's being taken, the more cautious generally courts are in imposing big procedural consequences until those big arguments and positions go through the appellate process of review. So I think that the Fifth Circuit and the Texas district courts in general generate a lot of extreme positions. What we saw here was this intersection of extreme positions and willingness first to issue a very sweeping injunction on the basis of the extreme position, nationwide injunction, and then to sort of double down on that after the Supreme Court said it wasn't appropriate. The combination of extreme positions and aggressiveness about imposing consequences before the appellate process has played out thoroughly is a way of really throwing a spanner in the uh, gears of adjudication as the federal court understands it. And they're just not going to tolerate that. More to come on this, that's for sure. Thanks so much. That's Professor Heidi Lee Fellman of Georgetown Law. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.